This is a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church, and we are in our series called Finding Your Keys to the Kingdom of God. May God bless you as you listen. Well, it is Palm Sunday. Uh, We'll get into the details of of all that a little bit here, but I have to tell you right at the outset, we're coming to the end of our series on the kingdom of God. We're looking ahead at the consummation of the kingdom of God as it's described in many varying uh, end times passages of the Bible. But I have to confess something to you. I have a hard time not interjecting my thoughts into all of this. I have read dozens of books on the end times from people from every position that's known to man. I have read every end times passage of scripture repeatedly, and in no way whatsoever do I feel like I've got it figured out. I don't. I have more questions at the end of all my studies than I do answers. So in no way do I think I've got it all figured out. And in case you think you do, let me tell you what you probably don't know. For instance, at the heart of every end times scheme, there is a differing view on when the millennium happens around the second coming of Christ. The millennium is that 1,000-year period of Christ's reign at the end of the age. Let me give you those four positions now. There are the historic premillennialism. There is dispensational premillennialism. There's postmillennialism. And there's amillennialism, four basic positions in this, in this field. Now, all four positions, understand this, have very prominent people, Christian people, upholding their views, along, all holding very feasibly, biblically-based reasons for their positions. Historic premillennialism, let me get into some of these. Historic premillennialism, for instance believes that the millennium occurs in the future after the second coming of Christ. The historic premillennial position is pretty straightforward. Dispensational premillennialism is a little more varied. Within the camp, there are the pre-tribulation rapture people. Uh, there There is within it the those who are mid-tribulation rapture people. There are also post-tribulation rapture people. There are partial rapture people, and there are those who hold to a pre-wrath rapture. Those kind of people. Are you getting it straight so far? That's just two of the positions so far in the millennium. Most of you are probably familiar with the pre-trib, pre-millennial view. Uh, because most of the books that you've read and the movies that you've watched, uh, like Left Behind and also The Late Great Planet Earth, those movies represent that, that view. But there are multiple views within that premillennial view. Postmillennialism holds to the view that Christ will return after the millennium. They believe that Christians presently live in the inaugurated kingdom as Christ reigns from heaven, yet they await God's kingdom fully consummating at the end of the age when Christ comes to rule the earth forever, eternally. Yet within the post-millennial camp, there are those who are preterists and full and partial preterists. Sorry, I don't have time to get into all those groups. Amillennialism. Ah usually sort of means not, right? Like there's not a position on the millennium. But that's not necessarily true for this position. They hold that the, the view that Christ will return after the millennium, but they 
Unlike the post-millennial people, some all-millennialists believe that the millennial kingdom is happening now, and it's not a literal 1,000-year reign. It's symbolic. However, some in the all-millennial camp expect no future millennial kingdom at all. <sighs> Do you see why this topic is so hard to navigate through and especially to preach on? Because I know within an audience like this, and those watching online, that there will be varied positions. And I'm going to get somebody mad if I tell you mine. And so I don't. But a word of warning. Just in case you think you've got it all figured out again. There are some very smart, strong people of faith in each camp. And they've all got some pretty good arguments as to why their view is right. There are also many who have held certain positions strongly and then have ended up changing their position, some repeatedly, like me. So when we're dealing with the end times, folks, we, we have to be humble, right? We have to be humble. We have to be willing to be wrong. Oh, I'm not going to be wrong. No, no, you have to be willing to be wrong. And it's okay to be wrong. Our views on the end times are not a gauge or they do not determine our salvation. The only view that we as Christians have to hold is that Jesus is coming back again one day, right? Amen? He's coming back again one day. And so with an open mind, let's get into God's word and let's get to Palm Sunday because that's all going to be preface for what we're going to say later. On this day... This Sunday, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. He's knowing that soon he will lay down his life for our sins. And we call that the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 to 9. Are you there? Uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you to kind of follow along, I think it's the same translation as you will see up here in the overhead. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible home. We'd love for you to have one and begin reading and maybe start reading through the book of Matthew. You'll start with Christmas, but that's okay. You'll soon make your way into the ministry of Jesus. And if you start reading now, by the end of the week, you could get to the resurrection. So there you go. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 9. As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. I should try that strategy, hey? Come into your house and say, the Lord needs that. I'll take it. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd there that day, seeing Jesus entering into Jerusalem in this specific way, they knew exactly what this moment was all about. Remember, there's million, a million or so people that are gathered for Passover in this city. They're coming in for the celebration. 
And for the crowd, this chorus of hosannas echoes in their minds the ancient prophecy of Zechariah that was already read earlier in, the, in Matthew 21 here. It goes like this, rejoice, Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Happened a long time ago, that prophecy. By the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, Zechariah, and the first wave of Jews return back to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile in Babylon. So it's about 538 B.C. Here now, in this present situation, Jesus' triumphal entry scene is 33 A.D. So Zechariah prophesied about 500 years before Jesus and about 500 years after King David. Zechariah was both a priest and a prophet, and he knew what life was like as an exile. And he, along with all the Israelites, hated it. They hated being separated from their Jerusalem and the temple therein. Zechariah knew what it was like to be persecuted for his religion, to be persecuted for his faith and to lose his freedom. Interestingly, Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. And that's precisely what Zechariah prophesied to the people of God. He says, stay faithful, he says. The Lord your God will remember his promise to his servant David and to Israel. Now, Zechariah wasn't the only prophet telling the people of the Lord to remember that the Lord would remember his covenants. Years earlier, Ezekiel 37, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I give to my servant Jacob, the land where where your ancestors lived. They are their children, and their children's children will live there forever, and my servant David will be their prince forever. Jeremiah, another prophet preaching in similar times, generations apart, but says in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live safely. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Then we, of course, have God's promise to David himself, King David himself, in 2 Samuel 7. We read that not that that many months ago. So, as, as you can imagine, 33 A.D., here now in triumphal entry, and this miracle worker from Galilee, he, he's riding these donkeys into the city of Jerusalem, and it just fills everyone with this messianic anticipation. It's happening, they're thinking. The son of David, the Messiah, has arrived. They're thinking the kingdom of God is at hand, and who can blame them? And everybody is celebrating in joy. But you know the rest of the story, right? This Messiah King, Jesus, the son of David, he most definitely inaugurates the kingdom of God, but it wasn't the political kingdom that the Jews were looking for. And it didn't take long before the crowds that chanted and cheered him would soon be cursing him. And as you move through Passion Week, Passion Week starts with Palm Sunday today, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, Jesus curses a fig tree and then cleanses a temple, overturning tables, rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees with those infinite, 
infinite, infamous seven woes passages. We hear some other hosannas to the son of David taking place as Jesus heals more people and then more parables ending in judgment. Matthew 23, 37 to 39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you, desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Tuesday. Tuesday is Jesus' Olivet Discourse. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus teaches his disciples about the end times and then answers their question directly. At the very beginning part of the chapter, the, the disciples have a question for Jesus about all this. Chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Wednesday, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then at night, he's anointed for burial at Bethany. Thursday, Monday, Thursday, in some traditions, it's Passover, it's the Lord's Supper. His betrayal then happens, his arrest, and then his quick, expedient trial. Friday, Good Friday, what a name, hey? Good Friday. The day that Jesus is crucified and is pronounced dead and laid in a tomb. Saturday, silence. As Jesus lays dead in his tomb. Saturday, who'd have thought? Sunday arrives. And it begins to shake things up. Easter Sunday, the resurrection of our Jesus happens on Sunday. You know, following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we see through the events of Monday to Wednesday, at least, Jesus focuses on wrapping everything up. He rejects Israel. He rejects Jerusalem. He condemns the Jewish leaders. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and then the temple in 70 AD, just 35 plus years ahead of him, from not, uh, not anything that his disciples should get excited about it, but they're kind of excited about the topic of the end, when it's going to happen. And remember, it goes like this. Jesus left the temple, Matthew 24, verse 1, and he walked away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Reading through the Olivet Discourse is challenging. Immediately, if you're familiar with apocalyptic literature, immediately you want to try to piece together a timeline of events through here to answer the question that the disciples asked Jesus. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All that Jesus says is really summed up in Matthew 24, 36, when he says, guys, listen, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But he does specify one sign. 
the sign of his coming and of the end. Verse, verse 14 of chapter 24. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Folks, I believe that the Olivet Discourse is cryptic, purposefully cryptic, in order to prevent people from knowing the day or the hour. It has to be, because no one can agree on it (laughs) in our generation. I believe the only thing that the Olivet Discourse is intended to do is to warn us to stop getting distracted by timelines and prophecies and instead get busy getting the, getting the gospel to the edge of the earth. So if anyone tells you that they have it all figured out, tell them that they're spending way too much time trying to figure out what they're not supposed to know and not enough time evangelizing the lost. And, and I, I'm not making light of that point. That's, that's what Jesus says here. In the earlier part of Passion Week, he's just finished cursing a fig tree for its fruitlessness, right? He curses the temple for being a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. He curses the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Israel's teachers, for being hypocrites and for burdening the people in, with rules instead of pointing them to Messiah. And then he curses Jerusalem for murdering the prophets of the kingdom of God. And we'll murder him now soon too. And now in the Olivet Discourse, he warns the disciples not to get distracted from spreading the gospel of the kingdom and risk becoming a part of those judgments themselves. Saying this, verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. And that's why he ends the discourse, I believe, with the urgency of the harvest. He says in verse 32, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Jesus doesn't have time to waste at this point. I mean, his hours are coming to a close. He doesn't have time for idle chit-chat. He's trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come. Namely, tribulation. Now understand that Jesus' immediate context is not the tribulation at the end of the age. His immediate warnings are about the great tribulation that will come in A.D. 70. When the Romans destroy Jerusalem and its temple. And that's exactly what happened in A.D. 70. If you remember last week, I said that prophecy is a unique form of literature. And that whether you're dealing with Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation or even here with the Olivet Discourse, the immediate context is always the present-day situation, present-day struggle that the people of God are experiencing. The people of God in that day felt like they were still in exile under Roman occupation. Something needed to happen. And that's the case here with with Jesus. He's, He's seeing all this that's coming ahead of him and he needs to warn his people. Everything Jesus is predicting here is about the destruction of Jerusalem and her temple in 70 AD, just 35 plus years ahead of him. But as any student of prophecy knows, he's also looking to the distant future, to the final tribulation and the second coming. It's important to note that men like Josephus, the first century Jewish Roman historian, believed that 70 AD was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. We don't have time to read Daniel's prophecy, but many of you are probably familiar with it. He says this, And indeed it so came to pass 
that our nation suffered these things, and he's a, he's a contemporary here with Jesus and, uh, after Jesus. And indeed, it so came to pass that our nation suffered these things under Antiochus Epiphanes, according to Daniel's vision, and that he wrote many years before they came to pass. In the very same manner, Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government and that our country should be made desolate by them. Now he's speaking about 70 AD. Likewise, early church authorities like Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, uh, Eusebius, all writing within the first three centuries of the church also took Daniel's vision as fulfilled in AD 70. So, was that the great tribulation that Jesus talked about in, in the Olivet Discourse? Verse 21, he says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Never to be equaled again? So should we expect another great tribulation? Remember, sometimes when reading prophecy, it's, it's important to make... Uh, it's, it's impossible to make a timeline out of things because it seems like the present and the future are always kind of concurrent with each other when it's being described about the events. They're running them together on, on the same topic. Again, I think Jesus is purposely being cryptic here in order to prevent people from trying to set dates. That hasn't stopped some people in church history, but he says, don't do that kind of thing. But there is one thing he was clear about. He says that Christians will go through tribulation. Both in 70 AD, when the Romans sack and desolate, desecrate the temple like Antiochus Epiphanes did in 167 BC, but also, according to him, at the end of the age. When the final abomination that causes desolation stands in the holy place. So what I'm reading here is that Christians need to be ready for those awful days. Now, 70 AD is already passed, but there's another day coming. Listen to Matthew 24, 21 to 25. Uh, I'll go actually 22. If those days, those tribulation days, had not been cut short, listen carefully to this, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. In other words, there will already be a lot of dead, martyred Christians. But for the sake of the elect, who are the elect? God's people, right? Christians, always has been. Read the epistles. Those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. In other words, tribulation, then second coming. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time, Jesus said. Remember, Jesus is warning the disciples here that they themselves need to be prepared to go through tribulation. Clearly, they would have been among God's elect, right? I mean, they were the apostles after all. This can't be tribulation saints as some end times systems propose. In other words, people who missed the rapture but then became Christians during the tribulation. Because why? 
Why warn Christians ahead of time that tribulation is coming and that they will go through it, verse 23 to 26? Why warn Christians if, as one system claims, Christians will all be raptured out of the world before the tribulation happens? Mark 13, which is Mark's version of the, of the Olivet Discourse, verse 24 to 27, but in those days, following that distress... The sun will be darkened, the moon will give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming. When? After the distress. In clouds with great power and glory. That doesn't sound like a secret rapture of saints. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Christians, God's elect, those who survive the tribulation will be caught up, gathered, as it says here, to meet the Lord at his second coming. Now, I don't know what you're hearing from these scriptures, but I hear that at the end of the age, Christians need to be prepared to go through tribulation, even great tribulation. Not just little t tribulation but big T tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now, I know that kind of upsets some people's things of what they've heard from other preachers. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm I'm also okay to be wrong. I've been wrong before many times, and I hope I am wrong. And I don't say this to be offensive to anyone's position, but friends, you could be wrong too. So could the teachers that you've learned your end times timeline from. But that's okay. It's not the end of the world, right? But yeah, how could God allow Christians to go through such tribulation? You realize that it's only here in the West that we think that the church will escape tribulation. And I think it's because our Western evangelicalism has never faced real persecution before. Many have suggested that it, it's, it's only our soft culture of ease and prosperity that, that prompts us to choose an end-time system that avoids hardship and persecution by conveniently providing a rapture out of the trouble. You realize that the pre-trib rapture system has only been around since John Darby created it in 1850. Before that, the church everywhere in the world, all the way back to the early church, believed that the early church fathers even believed that Christians would go through the great tribulation and that they needed to be prepared for persecution. In fact, there could be no greater reward or honor for them than to go through and be killed for their faith. Listen, I don't like the prospect of going through the tribulation any more than you do. But perhaps, and like I said, I could be wrong in all this. Perhaps, though, we should at least consider Jesus' warnings and be prepared either way. To not get so caught up in one system that we fail to see or hear what other systems are telling us. I encourage you to study the Bible for yourself. Read. Show yourself approved. But that's just a sidebar topic. The tribulation is just one part of all the many events that need to take place before the consummation of the kingdom of God in the future. 
So let's get back to the triumphal entry, the reason for Palm Sunday, because there is an important end times emphasis there that reveals what will happen at the consummation of the kingdom of God when Christ returns. At the triumphal entry, the king is making his way into Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem. Jesus is treating this parade as a prophecy, both a fulfilled one and a new one. Matthew 21, verse 9 to 11. It says, The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And we look all the way back to the birth of the nation of Israel. When Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel, when Jacob grants a blessing, the blessing of his estate to his son, Judah, in that blessing is a reference to this triumphal entry moment. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, to his colt, uh, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Hear the imagery going on here? It might remind you of Revelation 7. This is partly fulfilled in King David, of course. David is from the house and the tribe of Judah, but it is also fulfilled in Jesus, who is also of the house and the tribe of Judah. Why is this important? Two points. Number one, Jesus postures himself here at this triumphal entry as the fulfillment of God's Davidic kingdom. Jesus postures himself as the fulfillment of God's Davidic kingdom promises. And the people in the crowded streets of Jerusalem recognize this posture because they declare, verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Oh, to be in those streets in that day, hey? It's surprising that Rome didn't stop this parade. Everything about it was obvious to the millions, the million or so Jews that were there for Passover. And yet in the celebration of the parade, the crowds still wondered. It says the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? It should have been obvious to us who Jesus is. I mean, they were chanting, Hosanna to the son of David. But friends... Jesus is so much more than the 33 or so years that he walked the earth, right? And he is also so much more than the parade or even the Sunday morning services that we celebrate him in today. He is the royal fulfillment of God's precious promises for his kingdom through the line of David. And we've unpacked a lot of that in the last three months of what that means for Jesus and for us today. He is the hope of God's eternal kingdom rule now and yet to come. His death and resurrection have vindicated his right to rule, both in this world and in the next. Friends, the triumphal entry of Jesus 
It's prophetic. But you know what? The triumphal entrance of Jesus also begs a question for us 2,000 years later. This is our second point. Will you posture yourself to celebrate Jesus as your sure and coming king? Will you posture yourself to celebrate Jesus as your sure and coming king? Matthew 21, verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. As we enter Holy Week today, as we journey closer and closer to the cross and then to Easter, do you recognize Jesus today by his posture? Because in that posture is something more than just something prophetic. It's everything to us for our salvation. But if you do recognize Jesus in his posture, I think it should be obvious by now how you and I should posture ourselves. Do you parade him in your life like they did? As well as on Sunday mornings. On Sundays, when we, the elect of God, gather to celebrate and sing our praises Can I encourage you to remember that Jesus is bigger than Sundays? He is bigger than Sundays. But for sure, on Sundays, we should be the loudest bunch of paraders on the north end of Saskatoon. And that's saying much because there's five churches along this street. But also in your life network. Are you willing to look like someone who has jumped on the Jesus bandwagon? Or are you shy or afraid to let people know? Are you willing, eager in fact, to celebrate him publicly, to declare his name as the king of heaven and earth, to applaud him without reservation, declaring your hallelujahs and announcing him Lord over everything that oppresses the people in your life network? When someone shares with you a burden that they're facing, some brokenness that they're experiencing, do you respond with, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that? Or do you respond with, listen, Jesus can help you through your brokenness. He can heal whatever is needing healing. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me pray for you right now. Will you posture yourself in such a way that you declare Jesus your King? Because it's, it's imperative that we do. It's important that you see your king riding in triumph every single day. Not just on, on, on that triumphal entry day. Not just on Palm Sunday and Easter. But so that every single day the people around you in your life network know. Not just what you stand for morally. But whose you are. That you are the king of kings possession. And you await his coming. But also, will your posture today, maybe today for the first time, be ready for his arrival and anything, and I mean anything, that could possibly happen in between, even if it's persecution? I know that we in the West don't think about that that often, but we have brothers and sisters. There are the elect of God in other parts of the world that are facing persecution right now. That are being killed for their faith right now. We know that in here, but we don't give much thought to it through the day. We should probably pray more for them. But listen to Revelation 7 9 to 17. After this, I looked, 
He just talked about the 144,000. He says, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So it looks like the disciples didn't get caught up in end times timelines. They got going with the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then it says they were wearing white robes. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 49 and Judah's prophecy? And they were holding palm branches in their hands. Doesn't that sound like Jesus at the triumphal entry? And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then verse 14 explains who that is. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is very specific about putting all the pieces of prophetic history together into the future. But friends, a question befalls us. Are you willing to posture yourself before him as his servants, as his elect, even if hardship and tribulation come? Even if the great tribulation should happen to be in our future? Will you posture yourself as his servants who have washed themselves in the robes of the blood of the Lamb? Will you posture yourself as his elect? You may not have known it before, but your posture is important to your relationship with God and to your witness of Jesus in the world. It's one thing to posture yourself in the safety of a church service. It's altogether another thing to sustain that posture even in the heat of persecution. And I hope that we don't have to go through it, but I have grandbabies now, and I wonder about their future. That means that our posture needs to be decided ahead of time, right? And it needs to be practiced now in the world when there is less tribulational stuff happening. Worship team, I want you to come on up. And I want us to posture ourselves to be his servants regardless of what happens, to continue to parade him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to celebrate his entry into, palms, uh, uh, into the, Passover week, or the Passion Week. And as we continue along through this week and we draw closer to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that we sustain this posture so that it becomes our everyday posture until his, his coming. I'm going to read Romans 8 as a way of a prayer for us all. So if you want to posture yourself to be before the Lord in this way, that would be great. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we would face death all day long. For we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we are convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our King. Amen? Friends, that's the posture that we need 
before the trials and the tribulations happen. And it is the posture that we need to start each day with. And I encourage you to try that. As we move through Holy Week and get closer to Easter, let's posture ourselves, ourselves to be ready for the suffering servant, Christ Jesus our Lord. But also to be ready to celebrate and take up a posture of victory and hope that we have in the living Christ when Easter Sunday happens. So may this be our posture today and every day, declares the Lord. Amen.